The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. I want to tell you about some of the mystics that we're going to be who help us see the face of God. And these are the, what they have in common is they are either Carmelite or Carmelite influenced. And so uh, one of these mystics is Teresa of Avila. For those of you who do not know her story, she was a religious, she was a, a Carmelite. She actually kind of snuck off and joined Carmel. Uh, she was about 18 and her dad was pretty upset with her when he found out what, what she did. She went, it was a, a little, uh, uh, well, a larger monastery rather, uh, on the outside of, uh, Avila, uh, where she grew up. And the monastery is still there to this day. And her house is there. If you go on pilgrimage there, you, you actually kind of get to go. They built up a church around her house. And you get to see where she used to play with her brothers. She's a very pious girl when she was growing up. She and her brother resolved to offer themselves as martyrs to the, uh, to the Muslims. Fortunately, they, their uncle found them before they got very far from Avila. <laughs> You know, and then she, she joined the Carmelites. But what happened after she was in religious life, after she was living a, a life that many of us would consider austere, her love for the Lord kind of, uh, waned. It wasn't that she stopped doing any of the religious disciplines that she was doing, but she was avoiding prayer. She was avoiding prayer. She felt that when she prayed, the love that she saw of God touched her so deeply, but at the same time made her realize how unworthy she was of his love. And that sense of unworthiness discouraged her in prayer. And so one of the things that Teresa is going to help us deal with a little bit is this sense of being unworthy and letting that discourage you from contemplation. That if you feel that, if you start to pray and just say, I feel like I'm wasting my time. God cannot possibly be pleased with me right now. Mystics like Teresa of Avila and Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity faced, both of them faced this in different ways. Both of them faced this reality. And it's a, it's a normal thing to experience as you begin to pray. A sense of unworthiness. And it's such a deep sense of unworthiness. It discourages you and it makes you want to give up. And that's what she did. But Jesus didn't let her give up. And one day, as she was going to morning prayer, she would pray morning prayer and evening prayer, go to Mass. She'd do the things exteriorly that she was supposed to do. And she did them so well that everybody was always asking her about the spiritual life. You know, they thought she was already great, uh, a great contemplative. And she had done a lot of spiritual reading, so she would kind of parrot back the things she was looking at. But she herself wasn't praying. And she walked up these stairs, and as she walked up these stairs, she saw Jesus looking at her with love. And we're going to talk about that in our next presentation a little bit more. But it was Jesus crowned with thorns. Jesus scourged, the Jesus of the Ecce Homo. That's what Pilate said. Pilate, after Jesus was scourged, Pilate brought Jesus in front of the multitude and he said, behold the man. And, and they kept on shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He was the spurned, rejected, hated Jesus. And when she looked at the statue that was at the top of the steps, 
and and she saw this image it was she said it was as if Jesus was looking at her with love and it overwhelmed her and she fell down on her knees and she begged in tears she was given the gift of compunction and she compunction means the truth of God his love pierces you to the heart it's a great gift of prayer and she in tears begged Jesus to give her the grace to renew her life of prayer and never backslide again. And there are many other graces to her conversion, but that's the one we'll be talking about in our, our next presentation, the bridegroom, how the bridegroom comes to us. Um, and Jesus honored that prayer. The, uh, the next mystic that we're going to be talking about uh, in terms of the bridegroom especially will be John of the Cross, and in particular, my reflections on John of the Cross this afternoon, will, uh, th- later this morning, excuse me, uh, th- those, those reflections will be about his poem called The Spiritual Canticle. Spiritual Canticle. This poem was a poem he wrote while he was in prison. Um, his, his, uh, there was a lot of politics going on uh, when uh, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila began to try to have a renewal, a return to mental prayer among their, their brother and sister Carmelites. Carmelites have always been contemplatives, always. But in 16th century Spain, there was a bad doctrine that was going on. And the bad doctrine was that mental prayer or contemplative prayer, contemplation, was somehow dangerous for the spiritual life. And so you should observe external discipline but the internal movements of prayer, sitting before the Lord in silence, was considered kind of, well, the, you might do some crazy things. We'll look at why they, there was good reasons why they thought that, because some of the people who were doing contemplative prayer were nuts. Uh, you know, but, um, and so some of the, some of the Carmelites were concerned about this, and they were concerned about the reform of Teresa and John. And so John ended up being in prison for nine months, and mistreated what his brother Carmelites uh, uh, mistook his obstinate refusal to repent was a devotion to Christ. And so do you see he was completely misunderstood? This, to my mind, brings up a, a great mystery that happens in the spiritual life, happens in the mystery of the church. I always tell the seminarians, befriend your brother seminarians who are misunderstood and not popular. They, if the closer friends you are with them, the greater priest you will become. And, uh, and John of the Cross was one such as these. And finally, during his imprisonment, uh, uh, it, the conditions were horrible. He, uh, darkness all the time, uh, 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 not properly fed, not properly clothed. Twice a week he was led out in front of the community to be publicly humiliated and, and physically beat. And one of his jailers, while he was taking care of him, realized that John of the Cross was a great saint and began to show mercy to him and gave John of the Cross pen and paper. And John of the Cross began to write his very first poems, the ones that we have, his greatest spiritual works. And among these great spiritual works he wrote in prison is the spiritual canticle. And the spiritual canticle reveals his soul under a time of being misunderstood, uh, not understood by his brothers. While, while all this awful stuff was happening to him, stuff that I couldn't, I would 
just crumble in a moment. If you, when you read the spiritual canticle, you can see what Jesus, where Jesus is leading him in his soul. The spiritual canticle to get himself through prison every day, he would repeat him to himself prayerfully the song of songs. And he would pray the song of songs over and over. And so the poem that he wrote at that time, the song of songs was only written in Latin and you couldn't have a vernacular translation. So he wrote this poem so that his Carmelite brothers and sisters would be able to uh, have access to what's in the, the spiritual riches in the, in the uh, Canticle of Canticles, the scripture, the, the Latin scriptures. And, um, and so the poem represents it. It's, a, it's organized differently than it, so it's not like you can't match sections to, to the book, but the movements of John of the Cross's poem and the movements of the Canticle of Canticles in the scriptures connect. And you can see what, how the Lord came to John of the Cross and how the Lord, how John of the Cross discovered the face of Christ in a time of intense persecution. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> so the next, um, the next mystic that we'll be talking about is, uh, Therese of Lisieux. Uh, Saint Therese, yeah, Saint Teresa, uh, Therese of Lisieux, the, uh, the, so, so there's Teresa of Avila from Spain. In France, in the northern part of France, uh, kind of west and north of Paris, there's a little town called Lisieux. And, and Therese and her family uh, uh, relocated to Lisieux after the death of their mother. And so Saint Therese is a French mystic from the late 19th century, and she was declared a doctor of the church just very recently. And I, I, there's not very many doctors of the church that are declared so within a hundred years of their death, but she, she kind of was. So she has important things to say to us about contemplation. So we'll be talking about her story. She, her full name was, um, Let's see, Saint Teresa, uh, Saint Therese of uh, the Holy, uh, of the Infant of Jesus and His Holy Face, and and so she had a devotion to His Holy Face, and we're going to be looking at that um, uh, this uh, in the next presentation and the final presentation. And then the the we have an ambitious schedule. The final two mystics that we're going to be looked at, neither one of them are saints yet, but I think they will be saints. Um, within a few short years, more quickly than, than we might uh, imagine. Uh, the one is uh, John Paul II. Blessed John Paul II, he took mercy to the world. And he was an apostle of mercy. Uh, the, the theology of, uh, of mercy that arises through San Therese's contemplation of the holy face of Christ is one of the biggest influences of the 20th century. And among the different mystics she influenced was Sister Faustina Kowalska and Blessed John Paul II. John Paul II made available the message of mercy of Sister Faustina Kowalska. But he did so, one of the things he said, there were four mystics uh, that had the greatest influence on his life. Uh, San Therese of Lisieux was one of the four. Uh, the other was um, uh, Charles de Foucault. Uh, he lived in the deserts of North Africa, late 19th century, early 20th century. And um, the, uh, the other, um, I re- can't remember the fourth, but the other one that we'll be talking about today is Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. 
Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. So these are some of the uh, greatest influences on John Paul II. And we'll be looking at John Paul II and Elizabeth of the Trinity with a little side to Sister Faustina Kowalska uh, in our final presentation today. So that, that gives you something of a, a, of a roadmap. And the theme, what I'm going to return to with each one of these mystics is, what do they help us see about the face of Christ? And uh, there's a very particular reason why I I want this theme. This is the year of faith. And John Paul II, before his death, he wrote wrote a, a letter called in English, at the beginning of the third millennium or as the, uh, at the dawn of the third millennium. And in this letter, he says, I want to propose a program for the church to take us into the next millennium. The program I propose really isn't a program at all, he said. The program I propose is no program at all. What I propose, so there's, you don't have to pull out your organizational charts and determine the outcomes and uh, the, the uh, uh, sociological methods that, by which you're going to measure this program. The program I propose is that we rediscover, each of us, the face of Christ. To gaze into the face of Christ. That is the program for the renewal of the church. And, and that's what I want to do today. Faith, the year of faith, this is a year of discovering the gaze of the face of Christ. And each of these mystics knew this gaze. If we talk about contemplation, contemplation, the source and summit of contemplation is discovering the gaze of the face of Christ. He gazes on us with love. And that gaze of love is the very center and most essential part of, of all of reality, of all of human history, and of all of our lives, each individually. Because each one of us counts. Each one of us is treasured by the Father. No one's life is an accident. No one here is not wanted. Everyone, each of us, is treasured by the Father, cherished by Him. As we see that and as we realize that truth, then we also know that all those the Father's placed in our lives, they're cherished by the Father too. And they don't even know it. They don't know it. If we rediscover the gaze of Christ who shows us the Father, we will learn how to help our brothers and sisters know that they are loved. We will be able to speak, as St. Peter says, we will be able to speak a word of hope. A word of hope where hope is most needed. So that's the greatness of, um, of contemplation and mystical prayer, mystical wisdom the wisdom we get from gazing on the face of God, the greatness of it is that it has the power to save the whole world. And today, I, during our time together, I hope, um, I hope that the Holy Spirit moves you to enter into times of silence so that you can discover the gaze of Christ, so that you will find that word of hope not only for yourself, but for the whole world. All right.
Now, um, uh, I gave you kind of a little bit of a break earlier. Uh, what I want to do, uh, so I'm cutting into your break, 10.30 break time right now, but I'm, I talked about a lot of things and I tell a lot of stories and sometimes I don't always finish the stories I tell. I, I leave you hanging like, you know, <laughs> you know, so, so what happened, you know? So uh, if there's anything like that or a theological, we have about five minutes and I'll give you a break, but this is five minutes of my favorite time of retreats. Uh, I still stole this shamelessly from NPR and they have a radio show, the click and clack brothers. And at, at the end of, uh, they talk to you about how to fix your cars. And at the end of the show, they have a period of time called stump the chump. <laughs> so I'm, I'm the chump and you get to stump me. Um, and it's easy to do, but if I can't answer your question, I'll try. So, so do, is there any questions of, for clarification? Yeah, I, uh, help teach, um, confirmation to the youth at our parish at the Air Force Academy. Cool. One of the people on our team is very much of a contemplative prayer, although not a Carmelite. And she is, you know, all about just teaching, centering her contemplative prayer. Um, but sometimes I wonder, um, what's the most appropriate way uh, to teach it to children? About uh, what age we start doing that? And uh, what method um, would be the best to really to get them to see what this is about to Sure. So the, the question is about teaching prayer and a contemplative prayer to children and what the best, best method is. And you brought up a whole range of things, some of which I will address in the course of the, the day. One thing I'll just kind of mention now uh, is um, uh, I like to distinguish um, contemplative prayer methods from contemplative prayer. And in Christian spirituality, the method is always secondary to the reality. So it's quite possible for someone to master a method but not really be praying. And that's true of almost any method you can think of. It's especially true of something like centering prayer, which I would argue is a relatively recent invention. So so I'm, I'm ambivalent towards promoting that uh, among young people. Some people I know, though, have been very helped by it. And so if you're one of those, I don't mean to discourage you. If that's how God speaks to you, let him keep on speaking to you. We're going to see, though, the Carmelites offer us something more than a method. And I think this will answer the, the question a little bit. I think one of the most important things for children to help open them up to God well, a, one of the best methods, if you want to teach a method, is the rosary. The rosary is a chain of contemplation because Christian contemplation, unlike other forms of meditation that other religious uh, groups have, Christian Catholic contemplation, it involves sacred doctrine. What is sacred doctrine? Sacred doctrine is the truth the church proposes to us about God. And in order for us to be avail our hearts, to be open to contemplation, we're going to see in our next presentation that pondering the truths of our faith as is done in the rosary, that avails us to con- contemplative prayer in ways that nothing else can. And so I like, as far as methods go, I prefer methods like the rosary and methods like Lexio Divina. But whether... 
whether you use Alexio Divina means reading the scriptures, whether you use that or the rosary or both, the most important thing about the method is the love that you put in it. If there's no love, if it's just psychological acrobatics, you can abuse very holy things and not avail yourself to God. Sure. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, yes. What can we as, as Christians, basic Christians, other than praying, to help to bring back a reverence to the Blessed Sacrament? Because you go into church, you've got to ponder, and it's like a giant meeting hall after Mass, maybe before some place in before. And there's no way that you can collect your thoughts or anything because people are reaching out in love to one another instead of Christ on the altar. So beautiful. Uh, thank you. The, the question is, what can we do to restore reverence in, uh, in front of the Blessed Sacrament? And um, I think, uh, first off, uh, uh, I'm hoping that as we progress through the day today, we'll be able to look at the Eucharist as a, a gift from Jesus, which helps us see his face. Just like the Psalms help us discover this face of Christ, the Eucharist His real presence, body and blood, soul and divinity, they are given to us for communion, but also there in the tabernacle or sometimes exposed, when we present ourselves to the presence of Jesus in that sacrament, it it is a great gift to bring us into prayer. And to go back to the question, one of the ways to teach children how to pray, there's this movement called uh, Youth 2000, and uh, uh, they do something that, that uh, uh, and this answers your question too, they do something that uh, uh, all the youth ministers in Denver told me would never work in a thousand years. And this is impossible. Uh, we did this up at uh, Camp St. Not Camp St. Malo. We did it at the YMCA Camp of the Rockies up in Estes Park. We held this Youth 2000 for the young people of Colorado. And what they do wrong, the, the youth men, I was trying to get them to do this. Father Grishel said, this is a good thing, tell them to do it. So I said, okay. And so we, we got, we got, uh, worked with youth ministers to try to get people to go to Youth 2000. And, and the youth ministers looked at the program, they said, this isn't going to work. Why isn't it going to work? The reason why this isn't going to work is you're having the young people spend about 40 hours in front of the Blessed Sacrament. You know, they, you, that isn't the model for youth ministry. The model for youth ministry is you get them to play really hard and they get exhausted and then they, they stay up really late so they're even more exhausted. And then once they're exhausted, you can tell them about the gospel of Christ and they'll have conversions. So that was the model everybody was talking about. And this, this Youth 2000 though, you get there, you go in front of the Blessed Sacrament, you learn how to pray the rosary. It sound, they said, this is too boring. Well, enough youth ministers decided to give it a try anyway. And uh, they thought that if it's really bad, we'll just leave. And sure enough, within the first few hours, some, pe- some youth did leave, you know, because they just, it did look boring. And it was hard for the young people at first. But most of the young people, we had 700 young people, most of them stayed that uh, taking turns in front of the Blessed Sacrament, praying the rosary, singing songs, listening to witnesses and catechesis. And by the end of the weekend, the conversions, people, they, they had confession, 
So, you know, I'm answering your question. How do we recover reverence to the Blessed Sacrament? You revere the Blessed Sacrament when you, when you feel with your heart the presence of Jesus there change your life. And that's what happened to these young people. They felt the presence of Jesus. They felt His face shine on them. And as they felt the face, His face shine on them, they wanted to live differently. We got all kinds of vocations out of that, out of that one weekend. I, I, I'll never forget, though, the very last person who gave his witness. Cardinal Stafford was there. You remember Archbishop Stafford at the time, and the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal were there, and, and, you know, and the parents by this time had all gathered, and they're all listening to the young people give their witness, and there's this big old kid, I can't remember his name, he's at least six foot, maybe taller, football star, all the girls uh, in the retreat thought the sun rose and set on him. He was... <laughs> he gets in front of 700 young people, 700 of his peers, and tears are just flowing down his face. They're just not stopping. And he said, I don't care what anyone says. I felt the presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. I know he is real. I know he is real. If we recapture that experience of the Lord in prayer for our young people, the next generation will grow up reverent because they will know the Lord. So that's, that's I think, our, our, um, our great task. And the great task of all those who work with young people is to help young people do whatever we can, whatever we can, to help them meet the Lord.